Our, our study in the Minor Prophets has brought us this morning to a focus on Joel. He's one of the 12 Minor Prophets, if you happen to be our guest. But what we're doing on Sunday morning is we're taking a journey through the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of them. We've looked at two, at Amos and Hosea. They were speaking to the northern 10 tribes of Israel. Israel has had a revolution, and so the country has split, and uh, there were some prophets that went to the north, and there were some prophets that went to the south. Amos and Hosea went north, and they were prophesying up north. But, uh, but Joel is believed to have been a prophet to the south, that is to Judah, to the country of Judah, the two tribes that composed Judah. Now, one thing about Joel that's somewhat unique from all the other minor prophets is that we have no markers about him personally. We know he's the son of Penuel, I believe, but, but that's it. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know anything about him beyond, beyond that. We also, here's another thing, we don't know when he actually wrote. Uh, some people have believed that he wrote pre the exile. You'll remember that the northern ten tribes that I was just talking about will be destroyed by God. They'll be, they'll be literally uh, removed from the land. It, it's going to be a mess for them. They will never return. The southern two tribes will also uh, be judged by God, and Babylon, the nation of Babylon, will come down, defeat them, carry them off into exile for 70 years, and then they'll return. Some people believe that Joel spoke prior to that exile, some people believe that Joel spoke after the exile and they came home, really, because there's no markers. There's nothing in the Bible, I mean, in the book of Joel that'll tell us this is where this took place. Now, I tend to believe that Joel came first, prior to the exile, maybe one of the early prophets. And the reason for that would simply be that he doesn't mention Assyria, Babylon, or Persia, but he does mention places like Phoenicia, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom. And those were all countries that early in Israel's history were more of a problem for them than these others. So I tend to, tend to think he probably goes early, but you know what? With regard to his message, it really doesn't matter where you place him, okay? But we're going to look at him, we're going to look at him early, so we're going to look at him assuming that he's one of the earlier, earlier prophets. The book of Joel divides itself into two parts. Now, I know I'm, I'm probably in danger of losing some of you already because you're saying, man, this sounds like a class. <laughs> and uh, so, but stay with me, okay? I, I do hope to teach you the book of Joel. I do hope that when we leave here this morning, you'd be able to say, hey, I understand what the book of Joel is about. And I understand, I understand what the message of the book of Joel is about. Uh, but there's going to be, I, I promise you, there'll be some really, I think, some very personal applications for us in this uh, 21st century. So, all right, so the book of Joel divides into two parts. There's really two messages. One of them begins in chapter 1, goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 27. And then the second part of the book begins in chapter 2, verse 28, goes to the end of the book. Let's take a look at the first part of Joel here and, and talk about what it's about. And I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O, Israel's and li o elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust have, has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters, and it has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches 
have become white. Now Judah, or maybe Judah and Israel, maybe both, both parts here, have been devastated by a locust plague. It's not like anything anyone has ever seen before. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Let me talk about that verse just for a second. That's a Jewish idiom. You'll find that sort of thing throughout your Bibles. Remember this when you're reading your Bible. If you ever find a, a verse that says, There's never been like this anything before, and there never will be anything afterwards. That's not, that's not to be taken literally. That's a Jewish idiom. And what that means is simply that there has never been anything like this up till now, right? Now here's an English idiom that goes along with that for us. We say that was a thousand-year flood in Houston earlier this summer, right? We don't necessarily mean that it, a thousand years from now, that it won't happen for another thousand years. What we're saying is that is a, the, the proportion of that flood doesn't take place, but maybe every thousand years. So it, that's an English idiom saying something very similar. So what Joel is saying is something like we're seeing right now that's happening in Israel, we've never seen anything like this before. It's that, it's that big of a thing. And, and what's happened is that there have been four waves of locusts that have come through the land of Israel or Judah, okay? Some people have suggested it was four years in a row. I'll tell you why they suggest that a little bit later on. Some people have said it's four waves of locusts in the same year. But regardless, as the locusts have come through, the gnawing, swarming, creeping, and stripping locusts, they've actually left very little or nothing for the Jewish people to eat. No wine, no figs. And 116, Joel said, has not food been cut off before our eyes? He says the storehouses in verse 17 are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And sheep will eat anything. They'll eat it down to the ground. That's why a shepherd has to keep moving them because they'll absolutely destroy what's there, eating it all the way down to the root. And so he says, man, even the sheep don't have anything to eat. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Imagine this, this swarm of locusts that are coming through. The grass is green. Everything is luscious. But when they pass through after they're gone, there's nothing green left. He says it's like a fire that comes across a field, and then when it's, when it's done, there's nothing left in the field, just the, the scarred burn remains. That's what he's picturing. Joel personifies the locusts. He metaphorically paints pictures of the locusts. Let me give you an example. In one six, he says, they are like a nation that can't be numbered. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, they have the teeth of lions. They are like war horses when he gets to chapter 2. They are like the sound of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains. They sound like a crackling fire consuming the stubble. Imagine if you're in Israel and this is taking place. As the locusts come through, there's so many of them and they're eating and it's like crackling fire as the locusts are just consuming everything uh, in their path. Like a mighty people arranged for battle. Joel would say in chapter 2, verse 7, they run like mighty men. They're like an army. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their path. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes, the heaven trembles, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. I think that's literal. 
What he's saying is when the swarm of locusts come through, you can't even see the sun or the stars. I mean, everything's blacked out by the number of locusts that are coming through. So imagine yourself in the land of Judah. And imagine yourself, let's just pretend it's Surrey County, and all of a sudden, locusts are coming through like Joel is painting this picture. In the midst of this, God sends Joel to Israel with this message. And here's his message. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. This is the message that Joel brings to Israel. He says, you see this army of destroying, devastating locusts? They are God's army, and he has sent them as judgment against you. That's his message. Now, they're living this, everybody. I mean, this is not past. This is not future. This, they're in the middle of this. And Joel stands up and says, what you're seeing, this is God's army that's come in, and they're coming in to judge you. Chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? In verse 25, same chapter, uh, Joel says this, or God says this, that the swarming locusts, what the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts, God says, my great army which I sent among you. Joel makes it really clear that this army of locusts that are coming through Israel, God is sending them. And God is sending them as discipline from himself. He's sending them as judgment. And in the midst of this, Joel is going to introduce a term that's going to be carried through the rest of the Bible. All right, you find it in numerous places in the Word of God. The prophets picked it up, and the New Testament is picked up, and it's called the Day of the Lord. Joel introduces this concept called the Day of the Lord. You'll remember Amos talked about the Day of the Lord. By the way, some people say Amos copied Joel. Some people say Joel copied Amos, depending on where you put him, right? But, uh, but the Day of the Lord. And, and the Day of the Lord, listen, the Day of the Lord, whenever you see that in your Bible, the Day of the Lord is not a good thing. The Day of the Lord is the Day of God's judgment, Okay. And in three places, in chapters 1 and 2 through verse 27, we have what is happening to the Jews and the Israel or Judah at this time. It's called the day of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 1, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Chapter 2, verse 11, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome and who can endure it? Now, all three of these references to the day of the Lord are, are talking about this devastating locust plague that's happening right now. So the question is, why did God send the locusts? Or why did God allow the locusts? We'll talk about that in just a second. But why did he send them as his army to discipline them, to judge them? Why is this the day of the Lord for them? Well, believe it or not, the answer is very, very simple. All right, And you find it in chapter 2, verse 12. You see it? Chapter 2, verse 12. God says to them that he is allowing this suffering, he is causing this suffering, he's bringing this army because he says, return to me with all your heart. So the problem is the people have turned away from the Lord. They're not loving God with all their heart. And so I got two applications for us from this whole, this whole truth. Here's the first one. This is our application for us today. Know this, God is desirous that we love him and follow him with all our hearts. In other words, he sent judgment on, the, on his chosen nation. He sent judgment on them and discipline on them because, he said, you have turned away from me. You don't love me with all your heart. So he says, return to me with all your heart. 
That's the reason why the locusts came. You say, well, that's not a great reason for God to send the locusts to them. Evidently, in God's mind, it is. So the application for us today is this. God is desirous that you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. What does that remind you of? I'm sure you know, don't you? Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And and, and so when he's asked what the greatest commandment, he says, oh, that's really, really simple. It's this. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. He's not dividing us into four parts either, guys. He's saying love God with everything that you are. And, And so this is what we find in the days of Joel. The people aren't loving God with all their heart. So that brings me to the second application from this for us, and it's this. God is not unwilling to use suffering in our lives to bring us back to a place where we love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. I'm going to put that in the positive. God is willing to use suffering in our lives to bring us back to a place where we return to him and love him with all we are. God could have easily have stopped the locusts. And, and this is why I'm saying, you know, God calls the army his army. So, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Those locusts were there because God wanted them there. The question is, is God causing the locusts to come and, and, and destroy them like he's or destroy their land like they're doing? Or is God allowing the locusts to come? You know, in, when, when God brought the locust plague against Egypt, it's one of the ten plagues against Egypt. You'll remember when Pharaoh repented, God got rid of the locusts. Anybody remember how he did it? He brought in a really strong wind, and it blew the locusts out to sea. Actually, in the text, we'll find that it says something very, very similar that God can take, and he, blows, he, blows, he can blow the, the locusts out to the sea. And he's going to talk about that in just a moment. He could have stopped this at any point, but he doesn't. So here's the application. God uses suffering in our lives to get our attention. God uses suffering in our lives so that we might return to him and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, please, we we don't need to fall into the trap that says that all suffering in my life is there because I've sinned and God's disciplining me and seeking to bring me back. That's not true. That's not true. But but it behooves us, I believe, to do self-examination, especially when I'm suffering. It it, it really is incumbent upon us. It It is necessary for us to ask this question. If you're suffering, here, ask yourself this question. Is God seeking to get my attention? Is God seeking to get my attention and draw me back because I'm not loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? All right, so what does Joel tell them to do? In chapter 1, verse 14, here's what he says. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. This is serious. This is serious. Have an alarm go out. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. What's he talking about? He's talking about a day when the locusts have gone through and just destroyed everything and left them nothing. Evidently, they're in the middle of this. And, and so he's saying, he's saying, man, darkness is just ahead unless God stops this. So call an assembly, blow a trumpet, get everybody together. Chapter 2, verse 15, again, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim in a a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, children and the nursing infants. Joel says, get everybody there. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Listen, if you're on your honeymoon, I am sorry, but you get to this meeting where we're going to seek God. 
Let the priest and the Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword amongst the nations. Here's what Joel's saying. Hey, everybody, let's get together. Let's all come together. Let's fast. Let's pray. And and in chapter 2, verse 12, I read this verse already, but God says, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart, not your garments. So in other words, here's what God is saying to us. He's saying, don't, he says, guys, don't, this is, this is not something I want you to come and fake. I don't want you to come and just rip your clothes like, you know, I, I want you to come and I want you to rip your heart. I want you to be real about this repentance and come back to me with all your heart. And that's what God calls them to do. And that's what Joel's saying. This is what we need to do. We need to come together as your people, God's people, and we need to seek the Lord in this and and ask God to turn this away from us and and not fake it, but come back with all our heart. Now, one thing seems to be clear from this. If God doesn't change what's happening, they're not going to have anything left. They're not going to have food to survive. You're in an agricultural community. There is, no, there is no food lion trucking in food from across the river or from some other... There is no sea big old transport planes from our military flying in disaster relief. There's none of that. So if there's no food, if God doesn't leave them food to survive, they're not going to survive. So Joel says, sound an alarm. This is really serious. And then Joel, Joel does what every prophet does. And he points to God's goodness and he says, you know, but if we'll repent, if we'll return to the Lord with all our heart, this is what God will do. Verse 13, return to the Lord for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Man, you know, who knows? God, God can turn this around and we'll have enough to take care of the offerings and we'll have enough to live on. That's what he's saying. He continues in verse 19. God's speaking now. He says, behold, I'm going to send, if you'll repent, I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I'll remove the northern army far from you. And the northern army in this case, it's not talking about people. It's talking about the locusts. And I will drive it into the parched and desolate land. I'm going to blow it into the desert and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. In other words, I'm going to take winds, and I'm going to blow the army out of the land, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Verse 25 is probably one of the more quoted verses in the Old Testament for us as New Testament Christians. Verse 25, you're going to love this verse, you're going to know this verse. Then God says, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts and the creeping locusts and the stripping locusts and the gnawing locusts has eaten. Now verse 25 tends to lend itself to the the locusts keep coming year after year, just, you know, cutting everything down and destroying the crops so they have hardly anything. Seems to point to to consecutive years there, because I'll make up the years uh, that the swarming locusts creeping and stripping gnawing have, have left you. Now, we love to claim this verse like this. You know, Lord, when I have devastated my life because of bad choices, you are able to make up where I've screwed up, right? You're able to take where I've taken and made a disaster out of my life. You're able to restore the things that, that, that I have just given over to worthless. And, you know, I think that's probably a... I think, I think we can claim that. 
But in this case, that verse is probably just really literal. The Lord's saying, I'm going to fix everything the locusts have eaten. I'm going to restore everything. And so God goes on to say, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So brothers and sisters, that is Joel part one. That's the message of Joel. It's not really to us, but like I said, I think there's some application that's clear for us. Let me state it again. When you find yourself suffering, examine yourself. See if this is God's work, seeking to draw you back to himself. Because see, that was the point of the locusts. It was, to, it was to confront Israel with their cold, hardened, faraway hearts. And it was to confront them that they might say, hey, you know, um, we need to return to the Lord. You know, suffering has a way of doing that, doesn't it? It has a way, it has a way of speaking to our will. It has a way of refocusing our attention and getting us to examine ourselves. And so, so here's, here's the application again. When you suffer, step back. Don't hear me saying, don't hear God saying, don't hear Joel saying that every time we suffer, it's because of sin in our life. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying when you do suffer, step back. How is your relationship with God? Do you love him with all your heart? Are you living for him? Is this suffering something God is using to speak to me? And if, you, and if you step back and the Spirit of God convicts you and you recognize, I am far from God, then return to Him. Return to Him with all your heart. Return in repentance. Don't, don't rip your clothes. I mean, in other words, don't do outward stuff. Deal with your heart. Deal with your heart and turn your heart back to Him. All right, now that brings us to the second half of the book, okay? And um, I really want you to understand the whole book. That's the first half, chapter 1 through 227, all right? 228. Joel says this, he says, it will come about after this. And so in this part of the book, Joel's going to talk about something different. And he's going to talk about something in the future. And indeed, he's going to two more times talk about the day of the Lord. All right. So he's going to talk about other days of God's judgment. Now, this second part of the book of Joel is going to divide itself into three parts. Again, I'm not trying to confuse you, but the second part is there, there's really three ideas in this second part of Joel. I want you to see all three of them, and then again, at the end, I'm going to make some application for us from what Joel says in this second part. All right, so let's look at verse 28, and I'm going to read through verse 32. It says, Joel says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The day of the Lord, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, earth, I mean, uh, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, there's going to be things that these Old Testament prophets say that we will not understand what they're talking about. Um, one reason is that we're so far removed from the very day in which they live There'll be things that we, we won't know what they're talking about because we weren't there. There's no historical stuff that really helps us. And so we really might not know what they're talking about. Another reason we may not know what a prophet's talking about is he's talking about something in the future and it has yet to be. And so we, we might not understand it exactly. That does not 
apply to the verses I just read you. The verses I just read you, we know exactly what at least the first part applies to, okay? And I'm going to suggest that we even know what the second part, verses 30 through verse 32, or 31 and 32, apply to as well. Let's go forward in history. Jesus Christ has, has come to the earth, born, conceived by God and Mary, or conceived by Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been born, and he lives for 30 years incognito as a, a carpenter, At the age of 30, he begins to minister. He comes out and he says, I'm the son of God and I've come here for one purpose, really. That is to show you and reveal God to you, but I've come here also to die for you. At the age of 33, Jesus dies just like he said he would. He's actually killed. And then on the third day, on the third day, he's raised back to life. For the next 40 days, Jesus will be with his disciples. I mean, he won't be there every day with them, but during those 40 days, he will appear to them. He will teach them. The Bible says he will show them things. And at the end of the 40 days, he'll leave and he'll say, I'm promising that I'm going to send someone who's going to take my place and he's going to help you. He's going to, keep, he's going to teach you and guide you, empower you. I'm going to send him. He's going to, I'm calling him in my spirit. He's, he's the comforter. On day 50, God does that. God sends his spirit to his disciples. There's audio confirmation of that as they hear a wind rush through the building so loud, most likely it probably sounded like a tornado or something of that nature. There is audio confirmation, there's visual confirmation. Everybody's there, they see fire on the heads of everyone that's in the room. And then there's personal confirmation in that every one of those people begins to speak in languages that they have not learned. And so they spill out of this room that they're in. They spill out into the streets of Jerusalem, and they are talking in these languages that they haven't learned. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. It's Pentecost. There are Jews from all over Rome in Jerusalem for that feast, and they speak other languages. They're not really living in Jerusalem. If they speak Hebrew, they probably don't speak it all that well because they're from... it's, It's like you being from another country, right? They're from other countries. And so as these people spill out into the street, these Jews that are there, they began to hear these people speaking in, in their own languages, like, you know, somewhere from wherever, and they're hearing people speak, and that's, a, that's an anomaly. You don't hear people speaking your language, in this, but they're hearing people speak their language. And, and so they try to make an assessment of what they're experiencing, and the assessment they come to is these people are drunk. Now, why in the world you'd come to that assessment, I don't know, because, well, I won't talk about drunkenness, but you know what? You know, when you're drunk, I don't think you speak in languages you haven't learned, right? Some of you drunks, is that true? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. All right, uh, so I've never heard drunk people speaking in languages they've never learned, right? But that's their assessment. And Peter, the Bible says, now filled with God's Holy Spirit, stands up and he says, men, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Implication, who gets drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? He says, but what you are witnessing is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and following. And then Peter quotes what I just read you a second ago. Now, by the way, this is kind of a tangent note, but how did Peter know that? How did Peter know that what was happening at Pentecost was what Joel said was going to happen years, years, I mean, centuries earlier. How did, how did Peter know that? Well, I have a theory. Let me just throw it out there. My theory is that Jesus told him. 
And the reason I say that is because in Luke 24, Jesus with the two disciples says, as they're walking down the road to Emmaus, he says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And then again, later on, when he's with them all, it says, uh, these words which I spoke to you, uh, while I was still with you, that all things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, it could be that God zapped Peter so that he, under, he just knew. He don't know how he knew. He didn't know how he knew, but he just knew because God zapped him. But, but my, my opinion, this is just Jimmy's opinion, my opinion is that, that Jesus, during those 40 days, had been opening their minds to the scripture by teaching them things like this, that Joel would be fulfilled at Pentecost. Anyway, in Joel's day, what he prophesied was never, it, was, it had never happened, and it never, it never did happen in Joel's day. And that, in, in Joel's day, when the Spirit of God was given, he was given to individual people for a short amount of time, for a short particular thing that they were supposed to do. The Holy Spirit was never given out to everyone all the time, and it was definitely never given out indiscriminately, never given to women. Never given to, although that's not probably true because I thought about Deborah, you know, she probably had the Spirit. But basically, Joel comes along and he says, and Peter says, this is what you're seeing right now. This is what Joel said was going to happen. This is happening right now. And the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all of us. The Spirit of God is going to be given to all men. And so the young and the old, the men and the women, rulers and servants, they would all prophesy. Do you remember, you remember as we began this series, I, I said something about the effect that all of us should be somewhat prophetical. I don't know if y'all remember me saying that. Some people actually kind of, you know, came back on me on that and said, yeah, I'm not sure it's really true. But, you know, I, I think this is a confirmation of that. Because Joel said, God is going to pour out his spirit on all of us and we will all prophesy. And so there's a sense in which all of us are given the spirit of God by which we're to prophesy. Now, now please Please don't tune me out yet. I'm not necessarily talking about foretelling the future. I mean, I've never heard anything from God that lets me foretell the future other than what the Bible says is going to be in the future. Then I'll say that. But I've never heard a specific word as to what's going to happen to Joni or, or Dale. I, and I don't, you know, but that's not all that prophets did. In fact, haven't you noticed so far that most of the time they're not really talking about this specific thing is going to happen to you? They're really talking about what God's going to do and, and God's call for people to repent now. And, and so when these people, filled with the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 2, spilled out into the street, what were they doing? It tells us, actually, in the text. It says, we hear them speaking the mighty deeds of God in our own languages. What was that? I imagine it was they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. I imagine they were talking about Jesus, and they were pointing people to Jesus. That is what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Joel said... Joel said this, Peter said, this applies to us. Now, there's one thing that Peter says different than Joel. And, uh, and so y'all bear with me here, okay? <laughs> some of you might not be interested in this, some of you may. But, but Peter says one thing that's different than Joel. Joel says, after this, Peter says, in these last days, in these last days. So the question is, you know, what are the last days that Peter is talking about. Now, my whole Christian life, I was taught that the last days are the last days of all things. In fact, I've been teaching my entire Christian life that the last days 
applies to this 2,000-year millennium that we've been in. And the last days or the, the last days of the last days will be the very last days before Jesus comes back, right? But what if, what if that's not what Joel was talking about? What if that's not what Peter was talking about? What, what if what Peter was talking about was really the last days in which Peter was living? What might Peter have been talking about? And, and I'm, not, I'm not coming down here, but I, I, wanna, I really do want to suggest this to you because I find it extremely um, provocative. I, I find it something that I resonate with, so I want to share with you. What if the last days aren't the last days of all things, but rather the last days of the old covenant and the last days of the temple worship and the last days of the Jewish economy as they understood it at this point. Think about it. Peter could have ended in verse 29, but he doesn't. He goes on and quotes verse 30 and verse 32, and he says, these are the things that are taking place right now. He could have stopped at verse 29, and and then, then of course, you know, the, the stuff that follows wouldn't be about this day, but he continues on. And so verse 30 and verse 32, according to Peter, are also being fulfilled in, in this day, what if the last days aren't the last days of all times, but what if it's the last days of the first covenant and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that day was basically a precursor to the day of the Lord? Now, what's the day of the Lord? It's the day of judgment, right? What if it's a precursor to the day of the Lord when God is going to judge Israel for its rejection of his Messiah and he's going to destroy Jerusalem, and more specifically, he's going to destroy the temple that's at the center of first covenant worship. Let's read verses 30 and 32 again. The day of the Lord, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood because the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. At the destruction of Jerusalem, well, actually, notice what Joel says, and then Peter reiterates. He says, on the day of the Lord, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. In his preface to the Jewish wars, historian Josephus, Jewish historian, who is not a follower of Christ, has no desire to authenticate the Bible, basically writes this, nor shall I omit to mention how the temple was burned. This is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. The destruction also of the entire city with the signs and the wonders that went before it. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but Josephus goes on to talk about signs in the sky. He goes on to talk about lights at night that nobody can figure out what they are. Tacitus, which, who was a Roman historian at the same time, writing about the very same event, the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome, this is what he writes, and I quote, Prodigies fell out. Armies were seen to engage in different parts of the sky. Glittering armies appeared. The temple shone by the sudden fire of the clouds. The doors of the temple were suddenly thrown wide open. A voice more than human was heard that the gods were departing, and at the same time, a great motion as if departing. And again, I'm only, I'm only quoting these two guys who are not followers of Christ, one a Roman pagan and the other, you know, a Jewish historian, to say that there are all kinds of things that happened 
at the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that, that would coincide with what Joel said, that on the day of the Lord, there would be all kinds of signs in the heaven. When Rome, was dest- when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, great pillars of smoke were seen over the city, as in verse 30. Verse 31 says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, I always thought verse 31, that has to be the end of time, right? That has to be the very last of all things because the sun's going to fall out of the sky and everything's going to turn dark before the day of the Lord comes, before God's judgment. But believe it or not, I'm going to suggest that maybe we shouldn't read this with such literalism. Let me explain for you. Let me give you examples from the Old Testament. This is how the prophets spoke of absolute judgment. In Isaiah 13, against Babylon, listen to what the Lord says. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their consolations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That is a prophecy against Babylon. Here's one against Edom from Isaiah 34. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will be given off, give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with blood and all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. Ezekiel concerning Egypt says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars, and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light, and all the shining lights in heaven I will darken over you. I will set darkness over the land, declares the Lord. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. What if, what if, instead of reading these prophecies from Joel with a, with a Western literalism, what if we read them the way the prophets used them in the Old Testament? They were always metaphorical pictures that basically, when God judged a land, lights out. That's basically what it's a picture of, lights out. He wasn't saying the sun was actually going to fall out of the sky. He wasn't saying all the stars would disappear. He was basically saying that for the land that was destroyed, it would be as if you lost the sun, the stars, the moon, and everything. So when Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, when they ask him about these things, and he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in Mark 13, verse 24 and verse 25, this is what he says. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers that are in heaven will be shaken. In other words, if you're following me and tracking with me and not being too bored by what I'm saying, because this has really encouraged me, what if the prophet Joel under Peter's inspiring interpretation for us, is telling us that verse 31 and verse 32 are not prophetic about the end of all time, but they're prophetic about the end of Jerusalem and the end of the temple worship and the, and the end of the first covenant. Let's talk about the first covenant for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, listen to what God says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Under the first covenant, men approach God through the sacrificial system in the temple. Under the new covenant, all that became obsolete and actually was going away because Jesus, Jesus became our ultimate one and only and forever sacrifice. He sat down. There is no, we're not going to have temple worship anymore where we're sacrificing animals 
Jesus has done that once and for all for us. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that, that what Joel said and what Peter interprets for us is really going to be the end of temple worship. You know, think about this for just a second. I've thought about this a lot here lately. You know, the temple has never been rebuilt. Why not? Why not? Here's my suggestion. It's never been rebuilt because God judged it, and it'll never be rebuilt. That's my estimation, that the temple will never be rebuilt because there is no need for the temple. We are the temple of God, and Jesus is our sacrifice, and we do not need to do any of that anymore. Here's what God is saying. I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. Now, remember this, guys. This is so important you remember this. The, the Israel of the New Testament, yes, it includes all those who are biologically Israel who have faith in Christ, but Israel in the New Testament is every non-Jew, every Gentile, every Jew, everyone who names the, Jesus, names the name of Jesus as their Savior and follows him. We are the sons of Abraham by faith. So don't forget Hosea from last week. He will call us Ami. He will call us my people. He will say to us, uh, Ruhama, mercy. I have given you mercy. So Joel and Peter at the end of this segment in the first part of the last section, <laughs> he's saying, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from that day of judgment. And, and I'm not saying I'm right. But I'm telling you, I, I, believe this, I believe that Peter was telling us that, uh, that the second half of this has been fulfilled, okay? That the second half of this has been fulfilled. And, the, and the, end, the end times that he was talking about was the end of the first covenant. Now, real quickly, here's a footnote. Do you know when Jerusalem fell and was destroyed by Rome that no, no followers of Christ were killed? They weren't killed. You know why they weren't killed? Because they all left Jerusalem. Eusebius and so many of the church fathers talked about how all the believers left because they had been warned by the Lord Jesus of what was coming. And so if you go back to that passage, it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord on the day of judgment will be saved. It's really kind of a footnote, all right? But there's, there's the point. The main point I want you to see is we are called by God to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to prophesy. The second part of, the, of this last part of Joel is the coming of a day of reckoning. There's two more sections to the last part of Joel. The middle section comes right after. It's just a few verses, and, and here's what God says. He says there's going to be the valley of Jehoshaphat and then the valley of decision. There is no valley of Jehoshaphat, and no one ever knows what that is. The word Jehoshaphat means the valley of judgment. So here's what God is saying. He's saying there's coming in the future, because this, this is after the first part. Later on in the future, there's coming a valley of judgment and a valley of decision. And here's what God's saying. One day, we're all going to be judged by him. There is a valley of judgment, and there is a valley of decision, and we should be ready for it. And then the very last part of Joel is a pointing even further ahead to a day when God's going to make all things right. And so in chapter 3, the last four verses says, The Lord roars from Zion. I'm sorry, this is, this is the... I'm so confused. This, this, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, this is the Lord talking about his judgment. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, but he, Lord, is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. 
There's God's judgment. Then the very last part is this promise of ultimate restoration. He says, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills flow with milk. A spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And that's the promise for all of us, I believe, that God's going to make all things new. All right, let me end with this. Here's my application from the second part of Joel for all of us. And and regardless of what I've said already, even if you don't agree, you can agree with these things. Okay, so here we go. Here's the first one. Be prophetic. As a follower of Christ, be prophetic. And what I mean by that is God has poured out his spirit upon you if you're the follower of Christ. That's what Peter said Joel was talking about. So you have the spirit of God. And if you go back to Joel, he said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you so that my, my sons and daughters will prophesy. They'll see visions. They'll, they'll see things about me and know things about me. And they will prophesy. And so here's what I'm, be prophetical. Share the gospel. Talk about Jesus to others. Be his voice piece. Be his voice piece. And this week I had a, an email conversation with someone. And uh, they sent me an email, and they asked me a question, and this is an acquaintance, friend I hadn't heard from him in a long time, and, and I wrote them back, and we, we exchanged things, and, and, you know, basically we didn't agree, talking about the future this person would claim not to be a Christian, this person would probably claim to be an agnostic or an atheist now, and it wasn't my brother, by the way. And anyway, so he is, um, we're having this exchange, and so it ends very amiably, But I'm working on Joel, and I'm working on this application, and I just feel like the Spirit of God says to me, Jimmy, you need to be prophetical with your friend. What I mean by that is you need to to talk about truth ultimately with him in a kind and gracious way. So I went back to my email, and I said, hey, look, I'm I'm sorry because none of this kind of ended, but I really want to tell you one thing. I don't want you to misunderstand there is coming a day of judgment in which we will all have to answer to God. And, uh, and boy, he was gracious in his reply to me, but that's what I want to challenge all of us. Be prophetical. Be, be gracious, be kind, but speak the truth of God to others. Number two, be prepared. The day of the Lord's coming. It's coming. The valley of judgment is coming. The valley of decision lies ahead for all of us. Be prepared. How do you be prepared? You receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. If you're not there, devote some time to examining the claims of Christ. But be prepared. Be ready. There is coming a valley of Jehoshaphat, a valley of judgment, and there is coming a valley of decision. Be prepared. The last application from the second part of Joel is this, and be pleased. I'm trying to alliterate. Be pleased. Be, be filled with joy. Ahead of us lies, ahead of us lies resurrection, eternal life, immortality in a world that God has prepared for us that will drip with sweet, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and God will be a husband to us and we will be a wife to him and we will forever inhabit Jerusalem for all generations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take this, take this message, take this talk and uh, Lord, use it for your glory. Father, I pray for all of us that, um, Lord, that we would be prophetical that we would be prepared, and that we would be filled with joy at all that you have prepared. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.